Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Nina Totenberg needs no introduction, but we're going to give her one anyway. (laughs) Nina is NPR's award-winning and legendary legal affairs correspondent. Her coverage of the Supreme Court and legal and political affairs has won her widespread recognition. Newsweek calls her the creme de la creme of NPR, and Vanity Fair calls her queen of the leaks. (laughs) She's not a lawyer, but any lawyer in this town will tell you she knows more about the law than they do. Nina Totenberg, my friend, it is a privilege to welcome you to Words Matter. Oh, it's wonderful to be here, Katie. So before we get into the court, I want to talk about something that happened recently. You were on the steps of the Supreme Court, (laughs) and the Terminator was there. Arnold Schwarzenegger was there, and a video got captured of you putting the microphone right up to his lips, and it went viral. What was going on at the court? (laughs) It's a long story. It has been going on for a couple of weeks. One of the I take it, new cameraman, started yelling at me one day when I brought over somebody to be interviewed because I was in his shot. And I never leave my microphone outside because I can't leave my whole thing outside. I don't have a crew. He's the crew for somebody else, but I don't have a crew. <laughs> so, um, And I can't leave that way either. So, so I brought this a woman who'd argued a case over, and he's yelling at me. And somebody captured it on video And it sort of went viral. It did. (laughs) (laughs) And then, so a few days later, the partisan gerrymandering case was argued. And by the time I got out on the front steps, there was this big clutch of people around the microphone and the people who were being interviewed. And the people being interviewed were Arnold Schwarzenegger and the governor of Maryland, Larry Hogan, who are two Republican governors, one former, one current, who... And Schwarzenegger has managed to get independent redistricting in California, and Hogan would like to have that. But it's illegal in his state to do that unless you get the permission of the legislature, which doesn't want redistricting because they like their jobs just the way they are. Thank you very much. Right. So anyway, so I come out and I do what I do, which is I try to be somewhat ladylike about it, but I get (laughs) through the crowd. I get through it and I just come up and they're already talking and I thrust my microphone in. So somebody captured that on video and said, you know, you go, girl, you just get in there any way you can. And you, (laughs) so there was a little tweet storm about it. And I answered a A couple tweet storm about it. And I answered a couple of them. And then lo and behold, the Terminator tweets that he is thrilled to be interviewed by me anytime. And my husband reminded me that a couple of years ago, there was a different case about independent redistricting commissions. And he was in the clutch of people, but wasn't being interviewed. And, you know, I I like lawyers, but better to have real people or real politicians if you can get them into your story. So I sort of reached over and said, why don't we let the governor talk and pulled him in. So he obviously remembered that. I had totally forgotten it. But anyway, I have a friend in the Terminator. And I what did I decide yesterday? I was the Inquisinator or something. Totenator. The what? The Totenator. The Totenator. That's what I am. I'm the Totenator. That name's going to stick. So like, and you should know folks out there 
that Katie Barlow is a tote and turn. <laughs> a <laughs> she, tote and turn. Yeah, she was an intern for me. I was going to say, what is at the other end of that microphone when you're shoving it in someone's face is a terrified tote and turn that's holding the base of it, the recorder, <laughs> and praying to God that the sound is going through correctly, while also being weighted down by about two pounds of extra batteries just in case. Just in case. <laughs> <laughs> that's usually the Totenberg way. Yeah. All right. Well, that's a wonderful story. And before also we get into more court topics, I want to talk about the Oscars. We haven't had a chance to talk about it yet. <laughs> was that your first time walking the red carpet? It was probably it, my last time as well. You and never know. You never know. So so Nina was featured in RBG, the movie that was directed and produced by Betsy West and Julie Cohen about – Notorious RBG, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And related to that, she got to walk the red carpet at the Oscars this year. So I was, you know, I, I helped them a, a fair amount. I, you know, they th- that documentary I think is is one of the best I've ever seen. It's just a spec. They did a spectacular job, but I helped them sort of get in to see Justice Ginsburg because, as you imagine, there are quite a few tigresses at the gate in the outer office. And my advice to them was. You know, you just have to get in to talk to her, and then the walls will fall if she trusts you. And that's sort of what happened. So they have been incredibly kind to me and included me in lots of stuff. And I've had a great time being in the movie and sort of having, a, you know, a shade of stardom from the movie. And more than you already had, though. Yeah, but it's, you know, I used to be on television every week. Right, inside Washington. Inside Washington. And I am no longer on television every week. I'm on episodically when I can do it, when it fits into my schedule and somebody asks. So, but this, so this was good to have your puss out there occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, our Nina Gregory, um, who's our West Coast producer, said, I've got two tickets and you should go. So I, got permission, and I went. And I have to say that Bessie West and Julie Cohen included me in everything, including a family dinner the night before the Oscars. Ah. And I also, separate from that, when the International Association of Documentary Whatevers um, realized I was coming, they asked me to moderate a panel to interview Julie and Betsy in front of the International Documentary Association meeting. So I did that the day before the Oscars. And so I had a blast. I stayed in the same hotel as Julie and Betsy. They helped me arrange, you should pardon the expression, makeup and hair. (laughs) (laughs) Very important when you're walking the Nina Gregory. Nina Gregory from NPR said to me, I I said, you know, I feel a little strange. She said, I wouldn't think of letting you go to the Oscars without makeup and hair. (laughs) Now, the hair sort of looked like it normally does, which is fine with me. But, of course, they did a slightly better job than I do. It looked fab. I saw you walking it on the TV as I was watching it. And you and you texted me. You said, oh, my God, I there see you. you. I'm watching you. <laughs> I did. I'm sure that was that was an incredible experience. And uh, maybe not the last time that you're there. You never know. It probably is. But it was a wonderful thing to do once. It was a real hoot. And I had my husband with me. So and he could schmooze a sock. So that, you know, he could. He's fearless about that. I get in a big crowd. I know that it's sort of odd. If I'm not actually working, I am not quite as aggressive as I would be otherwise. <laughs> and there was this moment at the Oscars where I was supposed to meet Mandalay Del Barco, our person who was covering the Oscars, and there was she was in a pen 
but she was at the on the what I will call the premier red carpet, and I was on the junior red carpet, which is like ten feet away. So when I tried to cross over, this big security guy wouldn't let me cross over, and I tried to explain to him that I had to go be interviewed over there, and he absolutely would not let me. And finally, I went down to the end of the red carpet, tried to go up this the side, and I was just within a couple of feet of Mandalay when he intercepted me, and I was just moving, and he was moving, and I, I thought he was going to maybe arrest me or oh or leave it alone. I wasn't sure which, but I was going. <laughs> I was you. doing my job. <laughs> and suddenly this voice said, don't touch her. That's Miss Totenberg. <laughs> <laughs> and it was the publicity guy for the, for the Academy. <laughs> oh, my God. That's fantastic. Oh, what a story. I, mean, I don't know if it'll be quite like that next time you go. No, wow. I don't think so. That's amazing. All right. So fun stuff aside, other fun stuff, but a bit nerdier. I want to get to the court and, and reframe here and, and talk about the current term. But before we do that, I want to set the stage a little bit. And to do that, we have to go back to the beginning of this term, which would be the Justice Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearings, then Judge Kavanaugh. As you often remind your listeners, the court doesn't operate in a vacuum. So how can that kind of bitter partisan confirmation battle affect the justices and the entire demeanor of the court? Well, I think they're all very intent on at least portraying the court as not political as and as that they all get along, which I think they basically do. I think they have their moments, like any nine people who are together all the time for the rest of their lives. <laughs> you know, this is like marriage without divorce. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a reality TV show, honestly. Um, but – and I think to some extent, I think their views of themselves are as non-political. That is, not Republican or Democrat. But the fact is that for the first time since I've covered the court, the court is split not just along ideological lines but along partisan lines in the sense of who appointed them. That's partly a reflection of the Republican Party, which has a base which is far, far more conservative than any Republican base has been. You know, If you went back 25 years, 20 years, you would not see a Republican base like that. You can be – very conservative ideologically on the Supreme Court and view yourself really as not political, but you are still a reflection of the political parties. And the Republicans who now are on the Supreme Court are pretty far to the right in terms of their views. And the Democrats, if, you know, if we're talking about Mitch McConnell looking at them, they're pretty far to the left. But in fact, they are sort of center left compared to where their party is, the, the Democratic Party is, or even judicial philosophy. These are not real lefties in any sense of the word. They're not like William O. Douglas, for example. They're not like Thurgood Marshall or William Brennan. They're quite different. They are much more centrist liberals. Going back to the Kavanaugh confirmation hearing, you're certainly no stranger to a partisan battle for a seat on the Supreme Court. You covered Robert Bork, Judge Douglas Ginsburg, the Justice Thomas confirmation hearings, and the Harriet Myers nomination. 
So with six months in hindsight now after Kavanaugh's confirmation, where does his nomination fall on the partisan spectrum? Was it unprecedented or did it just feel that way? Well, I don't think it was much different than the Clarence Thomas confirmation hearing, except that uh, the element of race was not there. And we've moved on enough so that Republicans in this case knew they couldn't just savage the witness against Kavanaugh, um, Christine Blasey Ford, the way that they savaged Anita Hill. And in, in the end, it was, you know, that I don't, I'm not sure that there was anything that could have been done to make Republicans believe that something bad happened when Brett Kavanaugh was 16 years old or that to make Democrats believe that it wasn't enough to disqualify him. And his performance in that second round of hearings, I think, gave Democrats enough pause because it was a pretty partisan attack. Um, you know, that this was the revenge of the Clintons, a democratic conspiracy. And indeed, he eventually tried to walk those comments back a, a little after the confirmation hearings. Uh, and one of the unanswered questions for me, and I'm not sure I'll ever know the answer to this, is whether Brett Kavanaugh at that moment just lost his mind and believed those things because it didn't serve him well externally to do that. Or, after, remember, he was not Donald Trump's guy. He's a Washington establishment guy. He's a Bush guy. Or whether he got told, probably by Don McGahn or somebody, Trump's going to pull your nomination if you don't blow a gasket out there. And I don't know the answer to that. And I'm not sure I ever will. Yeah, I, wa I wonder the same thing. Unlike the Justice Thomas confirmation hearings, you were not subpoenaed to give information related to breaking the story this <laughs> right. go around. But did you hear rumblings about Dr. Ford or someone like her before the confirmation hearing, no. before that last minute? No, I, I really did not. And I know Brett Kavanaugh. I've known him a long time. And if we weren't talking about a 16-year-old, I would probably have been in the camp that said this is just very unbelievable to me. But we were, you know, <laughs> if I look back at the things I did when I was 16, I would not want to have to defend them necessarily in public. And on the other hand, you know, I, I just have no idea what happened there. And it's even conceivable to me that it, that it happened and that he doesn't remember it. You don't have to have a blackout. After all, if you're a kid and you drink too much, you and you pass out eventually that night. Will you remember must, what happened the night before? And will you remember forty years later? I don't know. I somehow or thirty-five years later. I'm I'm not sure. Last fall, you pointed out that Chief Justice Roberts has long asserted that the court's best currency is the notion that it is not a partisan institution. There may be ideological differences, but not partisan ones. So through that prism, how do you think Chief Justice Roberts saw the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings? Bad for the court. You know, this the last thing you want is this kind of a fight when you are trying to preserve the, the Supreme Court as an institution that is basically trusted by the American public still. Uh, I would say its toughest point in the polls was after Bush versus Gore. But it, it redounded because in a way the court – 
the only thing that 9-11 was good for was the court because it sort of pushed Bush versus Gore to the side. People forgot about it, forgot about their resentments, concentrated on them, on the fact that there had been this incredible terrorist attack. And the numbers of confident, for confidence in the court rebounded. So he f- faces a very difficult, a tightrope that he's walking. On the one hand, he really is a committed conservative, notwithstanding the ACA vote. I mean, if you look at the way he votes, he's, you know, there's, you could, there's hardly any difference between him and somebody like Alito who is, you know, trusted and loved by the right. On the other hand, He's the chief justice of the United States, not the chief justice of the Supreme Court. He is the chief justice of the United States, and he has responsibilities as the chief justice to preserve the court as an institution that the country has faith in. And so on the one hand, you want to be loyal to your philosophy. On the other, if you go too far out and you start invalidating laws enacted by Congress that are significant to one side of the aisle, you encourage all kinds of cockamamie ideas about how to change the court. Uh, The simplest way is to add justices. Now, we all know that FDR tried that and failed, but but he failed because one of the members of the court majority switched his vote on a lot of cases, and they call – that's why they call it the switch in time, saves nine. Right. It's a very careful balancing act he's got, and what he definitely doesn't want is a lot of very controversial cases, and you can't stop them from coming. I wanted to ask you, because you mentioned how the court was polling in 2000, what do you think the court will look like in 20 years? Do you think that Justice Roberts and his strong institutionalism will be able to weather this partisan storm? And, and with the historical t- context that you can speak to, having covering having covered it for over two decades, where is it going to be in 20 years? I don't know. I really don't know because this is a court that's more conservative than any that I've ever covered. And But in order to follow its heart, it would have to overturn a lot of precedent. And I don't think that this crowd is thrilled with that idea either because they do understand that there is this thing called reliance. People, institutions, companies, they all they rely on the rules that the Supreme Court has set down. So let's take one I don't think they're going to reverse. Can you imagine if tomorrow they reversed the same-sex marriage decision? Hmm. What would states that actually don't didn't want to have same-sex marriage do? And what kind of a jumble would that throw our republic into? I mean, it would just be an unbelievable mess, which is why I don't think they're going to do that and because they're ready to move on on that subject. But it's really – it's it's complicated. I think Justice Kagan just yesterday said during oral arguments that the court traditionally honors precedent and precedent is important, stare decisis, or at least it used to be. Yeah. I want to talk about executive privilege some, too. Since the Democrats won the control of the House following the midterm elections, they've undertaken a robust oversight effort of the Trump administration and document requests, invitation to witnesses, subpoena threats, and, of course, the upcoming political and legal battle over the contents of the Mueller report may involve executive privilege. Can you give us a bit of historical perspective on how the Supreme Court has viewed executive privilege since Nixon through Clinton and Bush and Obama? 
Well, in the Nixon case, they said, essentially, this is a criminal investigation. When you're subpoenaed for a criminal investigation, you have to comply. And then the courts went through another dance over whether the results of the criminal investigation could be turned over to Congress, which in that case, the attorney general, who was a Republican, um, a Republican appointee, wanted to do and wanted to have the independent counsel do. And so it was turned over in a package. I have a mental image of the sort of coming in with briefcases and in front of Judge Sirica, I think it was, and it was turned over. And that provided the smoking gun for the House Judiciary Committee hearings that recommended impeachment, where Republicans finally, most you know, most of them, I think, relented and said, look, we have a smoking gun because they could hear these tapes of Nixon ordering obstruction. So that was that. Uh, but what you have now on the Supreme Court is m- a much more executivist majority, I think. All of the Republican appointees served in the executive branch. Some of the Democrats did. Uh, Elena Kagan certainly did. But when you sort of listen to Kavanaugh in his pre-nomination days talk about executive power, he wrote very persuasively, actually, about what he learned working as a top aide to President Bush and how important it is to have all these executive powers. I'm not sanguine about how this would turn out when it got to the Supreme Court. And it's not helped either by having a president who, having just been at least personally vindicated, goes around accusing the Justice Department and the FBI of treason in investigating him. Now, remember, they have, what, more than a dozen guilty pleas already? They have a dozen or more Russian trolls that they've indicted for trying to influence the election. This was not some figment of the FBI's imagination. This was a serious threat that I think at least serious people in the government are now alerted to. Certainly the intelligence community is. But the president continues to want to sort of deny that anything happened. You know you're interviewing a journalist when she answers your next question without you even asking it. I was going to ask precisely about your thoughts on Kavanaugh's writings and and speeches about executive privilege. Going back to the Nixon tapes case that you referenced, that case was decided 8-0, I believe, Mm -hmm. with Justice Rehnquist recusing at the time. And then under President Clinton, there was a decision that allowed Paula Jones to bring the civil lawsuit, and that was decided Mm 9-0. Do you think if an executive privilege issue comes up that Chief Justice Roberts would be able to herd a 9-0 it depends. It sort of depends for what, you know. I, I think that the Supreme Court majority, or the Supreme Court, at least in in the Paula Jones case, thought, you know, these are not politicians, and they are not very smart about this. But they thought, <laughs> they thought that look, this is a personal matter. This is a civil suit. Yes, he ought to comply and testify, and it shouldn't detract from his ability to run the country. But if you talk to people who were in the Clinton administration, he was calling up and, you know, at midnight saying, here's a point that ought to be made in the Supreme Court and blah, 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 blah. (laughs) Backseat lawyering. Yeah. He knew he had a problem and uh, he wasn't obstructing justice by 
trying to withhold information, getting people within his administration to withhold information, but it certainly was a distraction to say the very least. And I, I, but I don't. I think probably Brett Kavanaugh and, and Elena Kagan may have had a front seat view of the possibilities for that, having served in the Clinton administration and the Bush administration. And I just don't know how it affects their view of, you know, that no man is above the law. And it's a very interesting question, and I can't answer it. I guess talking about the the makeup of the decisions that were 9-0 and 8-0 and whether or not this court would go that way, for our listeners who don't know, might not be lawyers or avid court followers, how often, um, how many cases does the Supreme Court hear every year and how often are those 5-4 decisions? It's not a question of how often they are. It's what they are. So I'm sure there are more 9-0 Eight to one, seven to two, even six to three decisions, then there are five to four decisions. They hear 70 to 80 a year, basically, these days. The question is, which ones are the five to fours? So, I, and every, almost every year, it, you know, I, I see people writing, ah, oh, this year you see the court is much more unified this year. So there are so many nine zero decisions. Well, we haven't gotten to June yet. And in June, <laughs> the really hard ones come down, the ones that they really disagree about, the ones that they're passionate about. And those are the ones that are five to four. So what this term is going to come out in June, what are the, the big cases coming up that we all need to keep an eye on that will may fall on that fabled last day in June that the opinions come down? Well, certainly partisan gerrymandering and whether there's any limit to it. Certainly whether uh, Wilbur Ross, the Secretary of Commerce, can add a citizenship question to the census for the first time in, in the census form that goes out to everybody, which is a very simple form. It's six or seven questions. And that form goes out to everybody. And he ordered that they add a, a the Census Bureau add a citizenship question, even though he was unanimously advised not to do that by the professionals who said it will make for an undercount because you're supposed to be finding out how many people are in every place. And if you do, if you add a citizenship question and there's anybody in a household, for example, who's not legal, they may very well not answer, not send in the census answer. But uh, the administration argues that he's the head of the Commerce Department and he oversees the Census Bureau and he can pretty much do whatever he wants. And they have a, you know, a, an alleged reason that the lower court did not accept for for adding it. He says he added it to help enforce the Voting Rights Act and that he was asked to do that by the Justice Department. Unfortunately, the Justice Department doesn't didn't back up that assertion. All right. So let's talk about you for a little bit. And I just learned this, actually, having been, I guess, a bad tote and turn that I didn't know this. But early in your career, you wrote a profile of FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. (laughs) Yes. How did that go over with Director Hoover? He didn't like it at all. (laughs) The thing about it was, at that point, I worked for the National Observer, which no longer exists, hasn't existed for a long time. It was the weekly general circulation publication put out by Dow Jones, which then owned the Wall Street Journal. And in those days, and we're talking about the 70s, there were two kinds of articles about Hoover. There were glowing adorations and there were hatchet jobs. And they said to me, because he'd become increasingly controversial, 
in his older age. And they said to me, we, we'll give you a month. And you, we really want a sort of down-the-middle look at profile of him and his tenure. And I took the month. I don't know how many people I interviewed, but a lot of people. And I wrote this big article that had a lot of new information in it. And he wrote a, I don't remember, two or three-page single-space letter, essentially trying to have me fired, accusing me of using faceless informers and all kinds. We published the article. So when he said it was a lie that his assist, his deputy, Clyde Tolson, walked a respectful one step behind him, we published a bunch of pictures of Clyde Tolson <laughs> walking one step behind him. And he said that something that I had said was a lie. And I had attributed it in the in the piece to a book by former Attorney General, the late Attorney General Francis Biddle. And so we published the page from the book. Anyway, I got quite paranoid at the time. And I, I bet. You know, people said, you know, I remember there was for a long time people said to me, why, ha- why don't you ever smoke pot? <laughs> and remember, I'm I'm in my twenties. I'm pretty before, young. This is before Justice. I mean, Judge Doug Ginsburg went yes, through way the way before. But thing. but already it was available. Certainly at parties that I went to as a young wom- single woman. Right. Whenever I saw it, I would leave. I was always I was paranoid enough to think that you know somebody might tell Hoover and that it would that I could get in trouble. You get in trouble with the director of the well, FBI. Well, that I wow. you know that I would be arrested. That right. somebody would some, so I just, you know, I was very careful for a very long time. I was a way better girl than most girls my age were. So what you're saying <laughs> is director Hoover really curbed your social life as yeah. a young girl he, in her he 20s. He definitely curbed my social life. <laughs> <laughs> but uh in the end it's it's a piece of work that I'm still to this day proud of and and uh, it was a very interesting thing to go to see people who were quite important and who would see me and talk to me off the record some of them most of them off the record and some of them on the record about um their experiences with him when they were in government or I even interviewed Roy Cohn so a lot of people know you as covering the Supreme Court now and you have covered the House and Senate Judiciary, the Department of Justice, special prosecutors, politics, everything over the course of your mm-hmm. career, uh, and still do. What is the difference between – I want to talk specifically about covering some of the special prosecutors. What's the difference between then and now? Well, you know, if you compare Watergate, Archibald Cox – really had the confidence of the country and of the attorney general, which is why when Nixon fired him, the entire top echelon of the Justice Department quit, quit, including the attorney general. And they had to name a new independent counsel who had the confidence of Congress. And he was genuinely independent because he operated separate from the Justice Department in many ways. And that led to the independent counsel law, which existed for a very long time until Congress got rid of it because both parties felt it was so excessive. It it was sort of a super prosecutor instead of just a special prosecutor. And now you see that Mueller reports to Barr. And Barr has a long history of b- believing in strong executive power. And, and he's a very effective administrator. And I think he's a really good appointment as attorney general, if you take out 
the the kind of position we're in today with a president who is unlike any other president we've ever known. You've seen a lot of dramatic changes on the court since you first started covering it. But one of the most dramatic changes is it has gone from an all-male body, nine men, Mm -hmm. to now a third uh, of its members being women. How has that changed the way the court operates, other than maybe adding an extra women's restroom? (laughs) In many ways. Well, first of all, there's a new new book out about Justice O'Connor, and lots of people listening to this podcast really don't know much about Justice O'Connor because they weren't cognizant sort of in the world when she was still serving on the court because she retired in early 2006. But I so clearly remember when she was appointed and what a joy it was to women because there had been talk about naming a woman to the court. President Reagan had promised to name a woman to the court, and I I think most most women didn't really entirely believe that, but he believed it. And there were lots of people who didn't want him to use his first appointment as a to right. name a woman. And he just said, I promised it. I, I really think it's important. And when you sort of read about O'Connor and how she was under the microscope for 12 years until Ruth Bader Ginsburg arrived and it just changed everything for her because she was no longer – she no longer was worried all the time that any misstep – Anything that wasn't perfect would reflect on all the rest of us, liberal, conservative, whatever, that women would not get judicial jobs. Well, when Ginsburg arrived, that changed because there were two of them. And then there was a moment for a couple of years where Ginsburg was there alone. And you could see that the weight was on her. And she exercised it in some ways. I mean, there was a day when there was a case involving a 13-year-old girl or 14-year-old girl who'd been... um, Uh, strip searched because they thought she might have actually high test Tylenol, that she might have hidden it somewhere. Right. I remember this case. And it was actually Justice Breyer, one of her fellow liberals, who said, well, you know, when I was in high school, people tried to shove stuff down my back in the locker room all the time. It was no big deal. And you could almost see her levitate out of her seat. That's an image I won't forget. I mean, she just, you know, her head went up, her eyes just sort of sent out daggers. And she, as she said, that is not the same as a young woman in puberty having her bra, you know, shaken out while she's and stripped down to her bra. And she was just furious. And, you know, essentially, bottom line, she turned the court on that because, and, and I would have to say that the women in the press corps that day sort of levitated out of our seats. So it's made a difference in that kind of case. Now that there are three members of the court who are female and none of them shrinking violets, I would say the members of the court are quite used to pushy women. One of my favorite parts of your piece that you were talking about on Justice O'Connor was that she said, it's always good to be first, but you don't want to be last. Right. One thing that hasn't changed is that while C-SPAN is celebrating its 40th anniversary, there are still no cameras in the Supreme Court. Is that a good thing? Well, I, I actually don't think that we'll ever, in my lifetime that we're, we're likely to see them either. And the reason is that the justices think – I think that there's a 
possibility that one or more of them might grandstand, but that's not the real reason. I think they think the lawyers might. I think that they think having the court on TV and sort of making it into infotainment is not really in the interests of the court. And I can't say that I entirely disagree with that, even though I do think Everybody will think this is because I work for NPR, but I do think making the audio available in important cases on a contemporary basis would be helpful. As it is, you can you can get listen. Everybody can listen to the audio at the end of the week. It's posted on the Supreme Court website, and that sort of diffuses some of the arguments that you know people wait in line and there are only three hundred seats in the courtroom and the whole country is entitled to hear this. Well, they can hear it. They can't see it. And I would have to say that in most cases, it doesn't matter whether you can see it or not. You don't. You wouldn't see much that you can't hear. But I remember George Stephanopoulos one day when he was just done being working for President Clinton, and he was on some panel that, I, and I was on another one, I think, at some conference. I really don't remember. And somebody said to him, "What do you think? Don't you think that TV ought to be in the Supreme Court?" And he said, oh, that's the worst idea I've ever heard. Now, I'm sure today he wouldn't admit he said this, but I really remember (laughs) it. He said, I can only speak as a person who's been an advisor to a president. And having been in the Supreme Court and seen how seriously they take their work, but that's wonderful. But if I were an advisor to a president and and there were TV in the court, I'd be advising the president who would be good on TV. Mm. I'd be helping him or her pick – somebody who would be good on TV, not and didn't look like Robert Bork with a beard and a little, you know, kind of with curly hair that's all out of place and stuff like that. All right. So final question. Toten Turns received lots of advice from you on the day-to-day, but one of the best pieces of advice you gave me was everyone gets one major screw-up in their career. <laughs> Make it a good one and learn from it. Can mm. you talk about that? Well, I think everybody's entitled to make one terrible mistake in their lives. And I'm not about to re-air mine. Right. But but it shouldn't be a career ender. And not unless you actually hurt somebody, physically hurt somebody. And I even think it's, it's all a matter of proportionality. You may get kicked down the ladder and have to crawl back up it again. But I think if you if, if I were to transpose it to the the Me Too movement, it's a question of what you do when somebody does one thing. Is it the end of his or her career? Or is there a possibility for redemption? If there is no possibility, you know, we've all seen people, many people, for whom there is no possibility. They are congenital fill-in-the-blank. Harassers, liars, shavers of, of the truth. And you don't want somebody working with you who's like that. It It doesn't matter what the... Thieves, fill in the blank. You stole my cup. I mean, it's not a big deal. Or you just can't trust their judgment. So, I I mean, I've been, I I think everybody, especially as a young person, gets to make one big mistake. But don't make it again because then you will, then people will have a reason for it to be a, 
a career ender or not to ever trust you again or not to ever give you any responsibility again? I have always taken that advice to heart. Those are all the questions I have. I can keep you for another six hours, but you've got things to do. (laughs) Unfortunately, Um, I do. Nina, thank you for joining Words Matter. I loved being on Words Matter, and I loved being with my friend and former – you weren't my employee because you were my intern and you didn't get paid. (laughs) (laughs) Just a tote and turn. Just a tote and turn. But it's wonderful seeing my tote and turns become what they become. I mean – this this actual last election year, one of my one of the totem turns became Secretary of State of Michigan, and wow. another became Attorney General of Connecticut. Amazing! So I'm thrilled. those are big shoes. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to the day that that you are where you think you are, where you want to be. Thank you. Fingers crossed. Yeah, fingers <laughs> crossed. Words matter. We'll be back next week, and we hope you will be too. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.